This is a Centre for the History of Emotions podcast. Welcome to the Museum of the Normal. How do you measure up? Where are you on the scale? And what about your children? What about your work colleagues? What about that person sitting right next to you now? What secrets do they have? What quirks that make them stand out from the crowd? We map and measure ourselves and the people around us, seek advice, comparisons and maybe pictures in online forums. We're haunted, it seems, by the fear of being discovered to be abnormal. But who gets to define what that is? And is worrying about being normal, normal? One late autumn night, on the third floor of the Bart's Pathology Museum, amongst the specimens pickled in their glass jars, the tight laces liver and the bound Chinese foot, we gathered a collection of living exhibits to explore the idea and the history of the normal. Yes, we have four drinks based loosely on the four humours. So we have the sanguine, that's associated qualities of being moist and warm, bourbon, campari, punti mez, and a blood orange and chilli pepper reduction. The choleric, which is warm and dry, with French vermouth, benedictine, a lime and grapefruit juice, and a turmeric sugar syrup. Then we go on to the melancholic, with its associations of being cold and dry, which is a dark one, espresso, I notice you're wearing a badge that says abnormal. Yeah, we failed the test. Why do you think that was? Well, I apparently lack the ability to imitate because of my scalp. That's what I heard. In in ordinary life, would you consider yourself normal? Uh, yeah. So, what are the things that make you normal? <laughs> wearing an abnormal badge. Yes. Would you say that's an accurate reflection of you? Um, I mean, I'm abnormal in many ways, but in other ways I'm completely normal, so it depends on the criteria that's used. Would you say that you think you're normal? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I think it's that relative, yeah. relative thing. So what is most normal about you? Can you describe what makes you normal? I think, like, my willingness to conform. Like, <laughs> I think I can pass as normal. That's probably, like, the most normal thing about me. I must admit, I'm very judgmental by appearances and things like that, but I keep it to myself. 
well, the human race is normal, you know, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. I don't think there is such a thing, personally. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Would you say that you're normal? I'm normal. Can you tell me what this is? So this is the Lost Emotions machine. If you switch the dials around to any of these years and uh, do a little fiddling with these knobs here, it will take you back to that year and give you an emotion that people felt in that year that may or may not still be with us, or if it is with us, it's probably in a slightly buried form. So which year would you like? We have 1080 to 2015. Okay, what about 1620? Okay, so 1620, let's switch those. I'm just turning this little red valve here. Then we pump this, and it should come out. Aha, aha, there we go. So here we have, this is melancholy. It's, a, it's an emotion, we still use the word melancholy, but it was originally a very different thing. It was, it was linked to humoral medicine, so it was supposed to be linked to black bile. And uh, it was supposed to be particularly susceptible to it if you were kind of a great man, had a lot of imagination and genius. And one of the particularly striking delusions of melancholy was about the glass man. So people used to think their whole body was made of glass because they were feeling so fragile and insecure. Uh, yeah, and obviously we still use the word melancholy today, but we don't treat it as a kind of specific mental disorder in the way that they did in those days. And even up until the 19th century, lots of psychiatric conditions were supposed to be caused by this melancholic condition. I'm Dr. Bonnie Evans and I'm based at Queen Mary Centre for History of Emotions and I work on the history of autism research in Britain and globally and I've just written a book on the metamorphosis of autism. I am interested in how from the early 20th century our ideas around what is normal or typical in childhood and what is atypical have changed quite dramatically and how autism has been a central concept in how these changes have taken place. Well, I always knew she was going to be long, tall, because I, for a woman, I'm five foot ten, so I'm always considered above average, and her father is six foot six. So in terms of like height-wise, I knew she would be like off the centile chart, which she is. Oh, they did say that Hud's had a big head, which uh, he still has a big head, so... <laughs> So if we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, there are many attempts to define and describe what is typical or normal child development. So there are researchers such as Gazelle, Arnold Gazelle, who devise schedules for child development and look at the typical stages that infants would reach at particular points in time. So an infant would be able to sit up at around three, four months and then also be able to crawl around six months and walk around a year. So these are the basic schedules of development that Gazelle thought about in the early 20th century. Things like what, holding their head up and rolling yeah. over. Um, um, had smiles for the first time smiling. when he was five weeks yeah. and I managed to capture it on my phone. Like, I was like so overjoyed, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, and the um, crawling and then obviously you get the, as they get a little bit older, sort of like ten months onwards, you, you get the um, when they're going to start walking questions and for me she didn't start walking until pretty much recently about two months ago at 14 months 
and being a health professional I think sometimes it's the worst thing because you have this expectation in your head from what you see professionally mm. and um, everyone kind of just assumes as soon as they hit that 12 months and they're one bang they start walking and that didn't happen for her whereas her friend over there who's younger than her by two months he was walking bang on 12 months even 11 months so there's not competition but you kind of compare them when you're not supposed to really and say oh well how comes he's walking first and she's not she's older so I did get worried and think, all right, if she's not walking by the time she's 15 months, I'm going to go back to the health visitors. Why is she not walking? So for me, that was a, an issue. Although many people think autism was developed as a category by Leo Kanner in 43, in fact, autism has always been a category, a way of thinking about child development that's been used from the early 20th century, right from the start, really, with the development of Freudian theories of child development. Freud first argues that children when they come into the world they are very interested in their own bodies their own selves and that they fantasize about themselves and their bodies in this early stage of thought and he calls this autoerotism but then the term autism is developed by Eugen Bloiler really as a critique to Freud even at that time so it's always been very controversial and it's, it's a criticism of Freud's obsession with uh, sexuality, as Freud was very obsessed with that. And so he takes out the erot and he turns this into autism. So that's the origin of the term autism. But it was used to describe all children. So it was used to describe all children in the early stages of thinking. And it wasn't used to describe particular groups of children. It wasn't thought of as particularly abnormal. It wasn't thought of as different. It was just a part of normal thinking. He didn't really make any sounds. He, even Dada Mama was for a while. And even now he doesn't say Mama, Dada, Nana. So, I, so a little bit of me is like, but also I work with children. So I kind of think, oh, you know, he'll get it mm. sooner or later. So in the 1950s, there is a big, big change in how psychologists, parents, teachers, others think about autism. And this is also a big change in how then these professionals and, and others think about normal development. There are researchers such as Melanie Klein, Anna Freud, Freud's daughter, they begin to use Freud's ideas about the early stages of development, about when children begin to fantasize about other people, when children begin to dream. And there's huge debates between Freud's daughter and Melanie Klein over, you know, what are children thinking before they can talk? What is in their minds and how do we know? How do we know whether they're fantasizing about being with their mothers and fathers or how do we know about what they're dreaming about? We don't know. And autism is a critical concept in all of those debates and discussions. It's not because there has been some great discovery in psychology. It's not because there are any better techniques to observe or understand children's early thinking. It's not that there have been you know, new scans developed for the brain or anything like that. The reason it happens is because of a major change in the law in the UK in 1959, the Mental Health Act leads to the closure of institutions for children with what was then classed as mental deficiency. So these would be children who we may now categorize as having learning disabilities, but it was a very broad definition of um, atypicality in child development.
I am a parent to three boys. I have a nearly six-year-old, a three-and-a-bit-year-old, and a 14-month-year-old, who's probably going to uh, put into the conversation. I'm recently separated from their father, actually, so since most of the one-year-old's life, I've been yeah. parenting by myself, but he comes around and sees them quite often. Would you consider yourself normal? I guess so. There's lots of things where I'm probably abnormal. I've probably got more children than is normal. I think at this stage of parenting, there's probably more people who are in two-parent families. So that's not normal. I've got only sons and not daughters. That's not normal. But I kind of think that my hopes and fears and aspirations around parenthood are pretty normal when I talk to my friends about it. So in 1959, these children are then integrated into the world. And so there was a need for them to be integrated into schools, to be integrated into social services, to be integrated into many other areas in which they'd previously been excluded. So most of these children had been classed previously as ineducable or uneducable, incapable of being taught. And so now psychologists had to think about what they were going to do <laughs> when it was realised that actually a lot of these children could be taught and that it was not helpful to have them kept in institutions where they didn't have, um, you know, sunlight and play and support and love and relationships. One of the things, I guess, that's happened in the last few years is a kind of greater diagnosis and recognition of childhood disorders, like yes. autism, Asperger's, ADHD, dyslexia, yeah. dyspraxia, all of those kind of things. Do you, is that something do, that you think is on parents' minds when children are young? Are people watching out for it? Um, did yeah. you watch out for those kind of things? Yeah, I did. I, I do think it's on their minds. I have a really in, uh, interesting experience of that because my <laughs> one of the reasons I'm separated is my my partner finds I think he finds parenting quite challenging and he was always trying to find a diagnosis for the eldest my oldest son he would say that he's not normal or he's doing this that's not normal you know being you know I don't know he had a, a phase of getting really angry about things when he first started school he'd come home and he'd totally lose it and couldn't you know couldn't deal with any of it it was much easier for him to think well this is a diagnosable problem and he didn't want to hear me saying, well, actually, I've read this and it's totally normal. And in my peer group, everyone occasionally says their child totally loses it. But I think, you know, he, well, he's a doctor, so he tends to look for problems anyway. But it, but also there is that kind of stuff going around of, well, you know, and we need to get in early and we need to start treating it early. And, you know, there are all these pills that you could take to stop your child doing that. Whereas previously autism had been used to describe the early stages of thought and had been applied really to children who were technically typical, who had not been placed within deficiency institutions. And all these ideas had developed and solidified in child psychology around what was normal and what was typical. Suddenly there was a crisis in child psychology because people realised that that isn't what's always normal, that isn't what's always typical and people develop at very different stages and many children who may not have been able to talk at age two would actually be able to talk at age five and that there weren't those very 
rigid classifications around development, around the early stages of development and how those changed, such as the developmental scales that Gazelle had developed. If your normal, normally developing child is offering some challenging behaviours, to look for a diagnosis that you could then treat and change your <laughs> child might be quite comforting. I know that there are definitely disorders out there and seeing my friend's little boy be helped in certain ways and to help him to understand the world better is really brilliant. But I think there's, there's a risk of children being manipulated to behave in a certain way and having just normal childhoodness being sort of stripped out of them. somebody abnormal? I don't know, like little oddities, like strange communication ways, not necessarily anything sort of negative. There's like a tiny allowance of what is sort of normal, at least socially. I think lots of people are branded odd or weird. Yeah. People say that I see things differently, so... And do you mind that? How does that no, make No, I love it. I wish I'd kind of uh, embraced it more when I was younger, really. So, yeah, it's good to see things differently, isn't it? Sometimes it's good to, you know, like, thinking outside the box and, you know, it's, it's good to be different. Have you ever worried about not being normal? No, not really. I was one of these children that grew very quickly. So I was sort of towering above all my peers. This is not meant to be a pun, but I was looked up to. <laughs> so you were not normal then, but that didn't make you feel worried? No, even though when I first went to school, I was called Beanpole, I didn't really find that hurt me that much. My eccentricities don't trouble me. If they trouble other people, that's their problem. I think I'm asking the wrong questions. I'm trying to get a what kind of... Well, <laughs> I'm asking them about what they think normal is, whether they think they are normal. And, of course, everyone's displaying their kind of liberal yeah, yeah, yeah. position hey, very powerfully. Yeah. So I think I need to find a more cunning way to get them to reveal something. Ask them if they're weird, because most people don't want to be called weird. No, so abnormal is kind of OK, isn't it? Weird is... Well, normal. No one wants to be normal. No. But actually, no one wants to be weird. Yeah. Do you think, because do you think you, you're, you're, you're noticeably weird? Do you think you, you oh, stick yeah, out for yeah. your weirdness? Because really just good from idea. here, you know. That's a really good <laughs> idea. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. <laughs> good <laughs> tip. Thank you. Hello. Would you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? Okay, if okay. I can, sir. Okay. So, would you say that you stand out as being noticeably weird? Weird. Weird. Strange. Odd. Bizarre. Sometimes I'm not sure. Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Right, you're at one fifty-one. So we are measuring people at the International Health Exhibition, 1884. Francis Galton uh, measured a lot of visitors to the event. Things like eye color, grip strength, arm span, which are the ones we're doing here. Wow. 
So really what Galton was trying to encapsulate and try to measure is to look at how different traits correlated with intelligence in particular. So he wasn't necessarily looking for what was normal, but he was looking to define how these various traits are related. He actually was also looking for what was exceptional because he wanted to find highly intelligent superior people, which are the ones that he wanted to encourage to have children. I'm Sarah Cheney and I research in the history of psychiatry and particularly uh, Victorian asylum psychiatry. The idea of normal has certainly changed um, over history but I think what's particularly interesting to me is the way we think about being normal has changed as well. At the beginning of the 19th century the term normal even was only really used as a mathematical term and so initially as a normal angle then with statistics it came to mean the normal distribution so normal was what was at the center of the distribution it was an average so um, the bulk of a particular measurement would be within this these normal parameters but as the 19th century progressed people increasingly came to see particularly scientists came to see normal as desirable so that really intrigued me the idea that for a long time, normal was just a thing that was out there and happened to be an average. And then, at a certain point, people came to see normal as being something you would want to attain. So people would want to fall within the centre of the distribution on a wide range of measurements. Looking at that history can help you to question why, why would we want to be an average? And why are these norms important? an event all about being normal. Would you say that you're normal? No. <laughs> Are you proud of your abnormalities? Mm, not necessarily, but I accept them. I mean, I don't think normal is a valid concept anymore for humans. It's convenient for society, isn't it? The way it is, but... So what do you do that's most abnormal? I got to bed really, really late. <laughs> and You're not supposed to do that. Exactly. <laughs> and do you think you get into trouble for that? Do you yeah, yeah. A lot. But it, it wasn't affecting me because I had a job that allowed me to do that. But if I want to do a job that starts now at nine, I'm having problems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a kind of working day yeah. assumes that everybody sleeps and wakes in the same and wait time. Yeah, exactly. I've never thought about that. That's really interesting. It's called delayed sleep phase uh, syndrome. And, I mean, I can stay up until 7 a.m., no problem. But then, of course, if you wake me about 10, I feel really bad. I think everyone does weird things. Like, you actually do big shivers all the time. Oh, yeah. And if, like... <laughs> If, if little oddities make someone abnormal, you're totally abnormal because you're always like, <laughs> when you shiver. So did you grow up in a family where big shivers were normal? No. No, they were always pointed out.
thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Natalie Steed for the Queen Mary University of London Centre for the History of Emotions. The Museum of the Normal was part of the Being Human Festival in 2016. For the 2017 Being Human Festival, the Centre for the History of Emotions is staging an event about emotional objects. On the 20th of November, at the Royal College of Nursing in London, we'll be exploring the stuff of feeling. Talismans, lost necklaces, found photos, fetishes and objects hidden under the floorboards. Find out more and book a free place at beinghumanfestival.org.